It is good to see everyone here tonight. As we've been going throughout this series of the Beatitudes and breaking down each individual part, it's kind of a, a little bit of a sneak peek, I guess. If anyone goes through and looks at the Beatitudes and knows the structure of what's going to take place, then you know my sermon topic every single Sunday going forward. But tonight we're going to be discussing a kind of a continuation of how all of this has, it fits together and it plays together because every aspect of the Beatitudes is building a foundation. We talked about how Jesus was teaching the Beatitudes, and it really is a backbone or a crux of the rest of what he's going to be teaching throughout the New Testament. But what we're going to be discussing tonight is seeking a pure heart. Seeking a pure heart. Behind me, you see the image, and that's kind of a a way that I like to think about it. The water is so still and so clear, you see a reflection of the sky above it. You don't see anything else out there. You might see the horizon in the background, but aside from that, that water perfectly imitates the sky. It gives that appearance of it. And just as Christians are to be imitators of Christ, we are to live a life that is pure because of our Father. Because the Lord is pure, because that is the aspect in which He lives. In fact, 1 John chapter 1, we see that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. There's no aspect of the world in God. The things that draw us away from Him, those are things that are contrary to Him. A complete opposite. And so as Christians, we're trying to live a a life where we're building this heart, this mindset that is separated from the things of this world. Over and over again throughout Scripture, we see how the New Testament church was dealing with worldliness. And in the Old Testament, we see it as well because a little bit of a newsflash, people haven't changed in a few thousand years. They're the same. And so you're going to deal with the same kind of problems. And just as you have the children of Israel saying, give us a king like the nations around us because they wanted to imitate the world, you have people in the New Testament trying to hold on to the ways of Judaism, trying to hold into paganism, trying to bring all these other ideas in and being led astray from the Word of God. Anything we allow to be in our lives is a roadblock on our path to God. Anything that we see from this world that is trying to drag us away or trying to lead us away from Him, it's just another roadblock. And so we're trying to seek this pure heart. This heart that doesn't allow anything else to be there but what God allows. So what we're trying to discuss this idea, how do I seek a pure heart? How do I break this down? Well, first of all, we have to understand that a pure heart requires loss. A pure heart requires loss. Now, what am I referring to here? Am I talking about loss of of family? Am I talking about loss of things? Well, there's a lot of aspects to it. First of all, when we're talking about a loss, we have to lose our love of the world. Lose our love of the world. Now, I'm not saying that you can't go out on a hiking trip and look out over the mountains and say, I absolutely love the mountains. That's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about that aspect. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. That's 1 John chapter 2. Here, John writing, he's describing this idea we're discussing. In verse 15 in particular, he's dealing with this idea of being involved with the world. In verse 15, he says, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away in the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. See, John is not telling us that we're not to love the people of the world and try to help save their souls, try to reach out to them, trying to guide them back towards God. That's not what we're referring to. 
What he's referring to is a love of the things that are of the world, as we just discussed, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the things that are in the world that separate us from God. You see, when I focus on the world entirely, I can't focus on God. If I focus on the things of this world, I can't focus on God at all. Why do we say that? Well, if I focus on the things of the world, the world is temporary. God is eternal. If I focus on the things of this world, I'm focused on a me-centric society when God tells us to deny ourselves. If I'm focusing on the things of this world, I'm going to focus on everything that just seems good and feels fun when God says that some of those things are a detriment to your soul. See, if I allow the things of this world to be my guiding light, it's only going to lead me away from God. So it requires loss. I have to lose something. I lose this love of the world. See, the interesting thing about it is if we were talking to a group of people and we were trying to figure out in a, let's say, a marriage relationship, for instance, or a dating relationship of some sort, if someone came and said, I love you with all my heart, but I also love this person and this person and this person and this person and this person, how long do you think that relationship is really going to last? You say you love me with all your heart, but you just said you gave it away seven times. See, if we were going to tell God, I love you, Lord, with all my heart, that means no, nothing else can come in the place of Him. Nothing else can be in that position. I put my entire focus in Him. But what else does this require? It requires a loss of pride. A loss of pride. Our entire world seems to be riddled with this idea of pride and almost fallen in love with it with the point, you need to be proud in yourself. Okay. Well, yeah, you need to have a love for yourself. I mean, even Paul wrote about that we are to not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. What's the implication there? There is a level of ought. There's a level with which we should love and care for ourselves because we're supposed to love others to that same degree. But I have to lose this pride. But why pride? Why is pride such a dangerous thing? Why is it something that I can't have a pure heart if I'm a prideful person? Because the fundamental aspect of pride is me. It's what I want, how I feel, how I think. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, he says, Pride goeth before destruction, and the haughty spirit before the fall. A prideful person is only destined for destruction. That's it. A prideful person is destined for destruction. How can you say that? Because there's so many prideful people that are in successful roles. Well, yeah, they're in, some of them are in successful roles, but their end is going to be detrimental. They've separated themselves from God because if I'm going to be a prideful person, what's the antithesis of that? Humility. And what does God tell us to be? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. Pride is about being proud of myself, supporting myself, making myself to look better or stronger than I actually am. But God tells us to be humble people. Let's look at James chapter 4. That's James chapter 4. Specifically, we're going to be looking in verse 6. James here writing about this topic, he says, But he gives more grace, therefore he says, notice this, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. 
That connects directly with Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34, where a similar thing is said. See, God has always had this attitude of, I'm going to resist pride. I'm going to resist those who are all about themselves because they can't support anyone else. They can't be a follower of mine because it requires humility and selflessness. What else does this require? A loss of fear. A loss of fear. Now, this one's a little bit complicated for a lot of people because, well, it's right to be afraid of some things, right? Well, yeah, fear is a thing that we have for a reason. If a lion came down this middle aisle, you better believe I'm going to find the nearest exit this way. I'm not going to go towards it. I'm going to be concerned. I'm going to be afraid of that with good reason. Every man probably at some point in his life has thought, you know, I could take a grizzly bear. Probably not. Probably not. But we have fear for a reason. It separates us from the things that are a danger. It makes us to be hesitant about our decisions. But what are we talking about with this kind of fear? In 1 John chapter 4, verse 18, he describes how perfect love casts out fear. Fear of what? Fear of the unknown. Fear of what tomorrow holds. Fear of standing up for the Lord. You see, if I truly love the Lord and I truly have faith and connection to Him and I'm trying to follow exactly what He has laid out for me, why would I be afraid of the things of this world? If God has promised me that if I seek Him first, then all these things will be provided unto me, Matthew 6.33, referring to food, raiment, shelter, and the things I need to survive, should I be concerned if my decision costs me my job? Should I be concerned if making a stand for the Lord leads me away from maybe riches and comfort? No. Because He promises that He will take care of us. If I'm putting my faith and trust in the Lord, should I be afraid of what eternity holds? Being afraid if I can make it there. When He's told us that if we cast our cares upon Him, that He will support. See, God has given us reason after reason to have trust and faith in Him, but we see throughout the Scriptures, even those in the Old Testament that were seeing the miracles and some in the New Testament also had moments of fear. I'm reminded of Gideon when the Lord tells him that he's going to be leading the people against the Midianites, and what is his first mentality? Uh, Prove it. So what does God do? He gives him a sign. Well, that wasn't good enough. Give me another one. Okay, you did it again. I could do another one. It would have been a terrifying thing. Or what about Moses when he says, I'm not a good speaker. I can't do this. God says, take your brother Aaron. He says, but who who am I going to say sent me? Say that I am sent you. See, we can go throughout examples of scriptures. Think about his even closest friends, the disciples. Whenever Jesus was cornered in the Garden of Gethsemane and He's going to be taken to be crucified, His disciples were, were really confident as long as Peter had a sword drawn, but the second that Jesus says to put that away, what happens to the disciples? They fled. They ran. They didn't know what to do. How, how do we, what do we do? They were concerned. They were scared. And then we have Peter standing in the midst of the judgment seat, seeing all of this happen to an innocent man. And one person points out, you're one of his disciples. You're one of the ones that was with him. And he denies three times, the Bible even says, with cursing. He changed everything about himself so he could not be identified with Jesus. 
Why? Fear. Fear. It's a paralyzing thing. If love is the greatest motivator, then fear is the greatest hindrance. It'll keep us from making the decisions we need to make. It'll shake the foundations of the faith that we hold to so dear, and it will make us lose confidence in one another. But if we have a trust and the faith in God, if we have a pure heart where we're not allowing these things to become a part of us, then we can have confidence. We can stand firm for the Lord. Really, that is one of the greatest sources of fear is unsurety, uncertainty, unstable. If I feel like I don't have solid foundation, if I don't feel like I know everything I need to know, then I'm going to be concerned. I'm going to be scared. story was told of men back in the First World War that those who had experienced artillery fire for a long period of time could identify how close those shells actually were just by the way they sounded. And when the new soldiers came to the front lines and they are experiencing artillery fire every single shot, they're taking cover. But the older soldiers, the ones who had seen more combat, said, no, that one's not a threat. That one's, that one's probably not going to hit. They had knowledge. They had seen what happened. They could identify the signs. They knew what things seemed a little off. They knew the practices. And that's what Christianity itself is for. We have older Christians who have seen things. They've stood for the faith in many situations, and they're able to help the younger to face and to navigate some of the trials of this world. See, God was not making a mistake. God did not accidentally come up with this idea of the church and how it should function. It was designed for a reason so that you and I have a source to lean on, so that you and I have this connection, this strength to move forward. So it requires a loss of fear, but it also requires a loss of hatred. A loss of hatred. Let's look at 1 John chapter 4 again. That's 1 John chapter 4. Specifically, we're going to be looking at verse 20. Here he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You see, God has given us a way of living in this world. He has told us how we are to imitate him. And if God loved us while we were yet sinners, then we should probably do the same, should we not? Now, does that mean we have to love the sin? We have to be okay with what everyone does? And we have to say, you know what? You're just a little stinker. That's all right. That's fine. No. We don't have to excuse sin to love a soul. But we can't love a soul and accept sin. That's not how this works. Because we have to understand the seriousness of what sin can do. Understand the consequences of it. So by loving a soul, we have to understand that reaching out to them and trying to help them to see the truth is necessary. Friends, the greatest way we can show hatred for somebody is never talking to them about God. Never trying to reach them. Never trying to help them. That's the greatest form of hatred. How can you say that? How, how can I? But it's going to be uncomfortable if I talk to them and making them uncomfortable wouldn't be a good thing. How quickly would you step in or intervene if your child was in danger? 
How quickly would you step in the way? Why? Because that's love. If your child is out in the street, a young child playing out in the street and there's cars coming, how quickly do you think you're going to jump out into that road to get that child out? What would you think of a parent who their child is playing in the street, cars are coming, and they say, ah, they'll be all right. They'll probably get mad at me if I try to get them out of the road anyway. We'd say, excuse me while I make a phone call real quick. Child Protective Services? We'd step in because that's a dangerous thing, but we see people daily that are in threat of eternal destruction. What is our response? How are we going to stand with them? We have to lose our hatred for these people. Because God doesn't look down from heaven and see all this and hate the people. He hates what they're doing for sure. God hates the way that people are doing things. In fact, we see in the book of Proverbs, there's seven things that the Lord does hate. He hates a proud look, a lying tongue, all these things that He's shown are evil things. But notice He didn't say that He hates the people. He will bring judgment upon them, yes. He will not allow those things to just pass, absolutely. But He wants that soul to be saved. The same should be true of us. It requires a loss of hatred. Also requires a loss of our lust. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, please. That's 1 Timothy chapter 6. Here Paul writing to the young preacher Timothy and trying to help him in his early career, in, as it were, for preaching. Specifically in verse 7 here, he says, For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have betrayed or have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves with many sorrows. See, when we're talking about lust, it's more than just the basic sense that a lot of people discuss it where it just has to do with the lust of a person. It's more than that. See, in the book of James chapter 1, he says, For when lust hath conceived, bring forth sin, and sin when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. You see, it's more than that. Lust is, I want something so bad, I'm going to go through improper channels to get it. I'm going to go in the wrong way to have access to it. Someone has something I want, I'm willing to kill or to take it. Someone has a person I'm interested in, then I'm going to cheat on that person. We go through improper ways of fulfilling that lust. We cannot have a pure heart and allow these things to fester. To allow these things to be there without some restraint. Without facing it head on, without identifying this is a problem, without reducing it. See, it's easy to want things so badly that you're willing to go through improper means when we're not content with the things that we have. Isn't that not what Paul was just telling Timothy? The things that you have, let us be content in those things. If we have the things that we need, do we need more? No. There was a famous interview of John D. Rockefeller and in this interview, they asked him, how much is enough? How much is enough money? Remember, this is the man who was the oil tycoon. He had everything. 
His answer, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. See, all of us have these ideas. If I had a million dollars, I would do X. If I had a billion dollars, I would do X. You know what you would do with a billion dollars? Exactly what you do with what you're making now. (laughs) Exactly what you're doing with what you're making now. It wouldn't change. Why? Because you didn't change as a person. You would do the same things. If I waste my money now, I'll waste my money then. See, we think that things can satisfy us. If I just had X, I would be happy. No, you wouldn't. Because you know what? That thing that you got is eventually going to be old. How do you know that? How many times do we get a new one of these, and the next year they come out with a bigger and better one? Now i got to get that one. Now i got to go up again and get another one. The things of this world, they're temporary. They don't last. It's not going to be there forever. So it requires loss. But a pure heart also requires maintenance. Maintenance. I'm sure many of us have seen those, those houses or met with people who live in types of houses where you walk in the door and you say, how on earth is this place standing? When I was down in South Arkansas, we would go door knocking at certain places down the streets. And some of these houses were built back in the 1940s and 50s. And you walk in the door and there's a crater in the living room. The bathroom's spewing water out of the sink. The ceiling looks like it's about to fall in on you. You smell a very strange smell that you don't want the answer to why it's there. But why does that happen? It wasn't maintained. It wasn't taken care of. Because I can also look at houses that were built back in the Civil War. And because of restoration, because of maintenance, because of being taken care of, that thing is still spick and span. Those houses, one was built in a later date, but it looks in so much worse condition. The same thing can be true of a heart. I can see a person, or someone can look at their heart and see how it is, and they can say that, well, my heart is just not clean, it's not pure, it hasn't been taken care of. Whose fault is that? Well, because of X, because of Y, we can always come up with excuses as to why we haven't followed after the Lord, why we haven't taken care of things, but the reality is God gave us the tools. We don't have to go buy the equipment. We have everything that we need to maintain a pure heart, to follow after the Lord, to keep these things taken care of, but far, far too many have stopped trying. They understand what they need to do. They see the need. They see the value. They see what happens if they don't. But rather than taking care of it, they choose to go the opposite direction. So this evening, I would like to make sure that we focus on this and we make sure that we are taking care of this. We're maintaining a pure heart. We see the things of this world. We know that we're not to be allowing those into a place of prominence in our life. We're not allowing those to become our idol or our guiding light. We're making sure that God's Word is the focus of our lives, but everyone has moments of weakness. Everyone has moments where it's difficult to keep going. We all know that lashing out at others and treating people in a wicked way is is not something we should be doing, but given the right circumstances, maybe I'm tired. Maybe I'm hungry. That's a big one. That's a big one. We've all heard of hangry. (laughs) 
But in moments of weakness, I can sometimes put cracks in my own foundation. And if I don't treat that, if I don't take care of that, those cracks will only get worse. So how do I maintain this heart? What is this maintenance that we're talking about? You see, a pure heart requires that we maintain all these things that we take care of this, but it's not something that happens overnight. I'm not going to magically become a Christian and now I am the basic spitting image of the Apostle Paul. That's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. I'm not just going to magically get in the right frame of mind on everything. I'm not going to always be perfect. So how do I discuss this? Let's look at the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. One of the smaller books of the New Testament. But let's look at verses 9 and 10. It's Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, being fruitful in every good work, and notice this, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to His glorious power for all patience and longsuffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. Notice how Paul described that. He says you're going to be growing. We're praying that you continue to grow, that you grow stronger, that you prepare yourself. It's an illustration we probably used a million times, probably heard a million times, but it bears repeating. We don't expect children to be able to file tax returns. That takes training. It takes knowledge. Some of us still don't know how to do tax returns. Some of us still struggle with all the things we have to keep up with. But it takes time. It takes maturing. It takes understanding that even when it comes to managing finances, I have to understand, I can't have this right now. I've got to wait till later. It takes maturity. But we're perfectly fine when we look at the Bible and we say, this person is a babe in Christ, but they're supposed to have everything figured out. No, that's why we step in and we try to help teach them the Word of God more perfectly as what happened with Aquila and Priscilla and talking to Apollos. See, Apollos was one who became a new, he was a new Christian. He was excited to teach the Word of God. He was thrilled so much so that he was willing to jump in a pulpit and start telling everybody that they need to become Christians. But he still missed some things. He only knew the baptism of John, and he said, he started teaching these things, and Aquila and Priscilla, they see this happen, and they say, hey, Apollos, come here. We're excited. We're glad that you're doing this kind of stuff, but let's work on some of these things. Let's correct some of these things. And after they correct that, it says that he continued to preach. And then we read about him again later on where Paul says, I planted and who watered? Apollos. But God gave the increase. See, that's what happens when we take care of this in the right way. See, we want to continue to grow. We want to make sure that we're maintaining, that we're building, that we're making sure we're making this foundation as structurally sound as we can. But sometimes that takes time. Sometimes people are not as mature as they should be. And that requires patience. It requires mercy that we talked about this morning. But more than that, it also it, we have to understand that with this pure heart, it requires maintenance because it can be lost. We can have a pure heart now, but you can lose it just as quickly as you got it. 
Now what do you mean by that, Josh? Why would you say that we can lose our pure heart? The same way you can lose a house. The same way if there's a structural problem with your house, you don't wait till a year later to take care of it. You take care of it right there, right then, because if that is allowed to stay, that whole house comes tumbling down. I have to make sure that I am keeping an eye on this, make sure I'm prepared for these things that come up. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 27, Paul describes that he buffets his body daily, lest at any times when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. My dad describes over and over again when he was at the Memphis School of Preaching, he had an instructor, and his favorite statement was, the biggest room in my house is the room for improvement. And dad and several of his classmates looked one to another, they were talking about it, and they said, if that's his biggest room for improvement, what chance have I got? <laughs> what chance have I got? But the reality is, people can falter. People can always improve. People can always grow stronger and better. And in our world today, that seems like a dirty word. You go up to someone and say, you know, you can be better. And they say, how dare you say I'm not good? Did I say that? (laughs) Did I say that you're not good? Did I say that you're an evil, wicked person because I told you you can improve? See, our world today wants to fester and grow this idea that you're perfectly fine just how you are. Some of us aren't. Some of us aren't just the way that we are a good person. You can go throughout probably your own life, maybe you can hear stories from other people and you find examples about people who were just the absolute worst. This is the person you wish, if they'd live next door, you wish you could live three doors down. Two states away. But you see how there's examples where those people were able to better themselves. Maybe there was something that was going on in their lives that they knew they needed to fix, but they just didn't get around to it. And when they finally got around to it, their life got better. Maybe there were people who hated God before, but after hearing who He actually was and following after His Word, they became a a total different person. It requires an understanding, first of all, though, that I can build this, but I never get to the point where I'm not afraid of losing it. See, there's some types of fear that are good. Now, this is not the kind of fear where I say, I'm so scared of losing my pure heart, so I'm going to go build a monastery out in the mountains of Romania, and I'm going to live there for the rest of my life so I make sure I can't sin anymore. That's not what we're talking about. But it does take an understanding that I have to keep an eye on things. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. He is looking for every opportunity. That's why we have to keep our eyes open. Not in a panic state, because we also understand that res- the Lord said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. See, we serve a God who is greater than the devil. We serve a God that is greater than my own weakness. We serve a God that is greater than my own shortcomings. But it requires trust and faith in Him. See, we grow stronger from studying the Word of God and experience. Experience. Yes, studying the Word of God is essential. If I don't know the Word of God when it comes to moments that I'm facing 
either from wickedness from other people or my own temptations, I'm not going to be prepared. I'm not going to stand strong because I will have no idea what to do. In 1 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, Paul writes to Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. True or false, are there people in the world who are trying to teach, quote-unquote, the word of God, but they're not teaching it the right way? We can easily see that. We can easily see that. We can see that there are some people who take the Word of God and it's like a roulette game or something where they just go, okay, I like that verse. But they never study the context. They never study the message that was trying to be taught. And it can be an infuriating thing because you can see the damage that it's doing. You can watch as people are claiming to be followers of God only to find out on the Day of Judgment that they've never been taught the truth. but we can grow stronger from learning the Word of God. Knowing what He said before, what He says after, knowing how God feels about certain things and how God would never allow this to take place. See, people ask oftentimes, well, how how do I study the Word of God? How do I really dig into the Word of God? And the answer that is given to them usually is not one they want to hear because they want to know if there's some secret sauce or some secret formula. And Don can back me up on this. Read. Read. And you say, well, there's got to be more to it than that. I mean, you've got to know the Greek and the Hebrew. You got Read. <laughs> because the more you read, the more you understand the character of God, the more you understand the character of God, the more you understand the thought processes of God, then you can easily see how some things are wrong and some things are right. How did you get to know your spouse? How did you get to know your children? How did you get to know your best friend? By talking to them. By hearing what they have to say about certain things. By listening to them as they go on about the things that they're passionate about. Friends, this is God's literal letter to you pouring Himself out on a page. All it takes is for us to read it. For us to see who He is. Not reading it for what I think about things or how I feel about things, but I read the Word of God trying to understand what does He think about things. Why does He feel the way He does about things? Why when I look throughout the Scriptures do I see things that are wrong, things that are right? Why do I see that God is against a prideful person? Why do I see that God is against adultery? Why do I see that God is against these things? By understanding the character of God. By seeing how He's viewed them, how He created things. How He created this beautiful world around us and it took man messing it all up for Him to have to come and fix it. When God looked upon the world in Genesis chapter 2, He looked on everything that He had created, yes, including mankind, and said it is very good. And it took less than a few verses for that all to change. Because man allowed his own pride to separate him from God. See, it's by studying the Word of God that we truly understand what it means to be a Christian. We understand the value of the church. We understand the danger of sin. Paul himself wrote that it was only by the law that he understood how evil sin was. When you go throughout the Bible, you can see how God laid it out. In the book of Genesis, we see the beginning of the world, how God views the value of man, the value of all that He created. From Exodus all the way to Matthew, we see how God is trying to talk about the seriousness of sin. 
How sin separates you from God. How sin has serious consequences. The book of Matthew through John, we see how God says, I'm bringing you a Savior. Here He is. Listen to what He has to say. And we see how the world rejected even Him. And from the book of Acts all the way to Revelation, we see that this church has been created, that God has built exactly what He promised He would, and here's how you can access it. Laid out all like a perfect story for us to see exactly how God feels. Exactly what God thinks. Friends, the Bible is not there to be a guide for us to get get you arguments. The Bible is not there so I have ammunition to fight everybody. The Bible is there so we can see exactly who God is, exactly who I am, and exactly where I need to go. And then to go tell everybody else. When we allow ourselves to be caught up with this mentality of trying to really just look at every single possible thing and fight over every possible thing, we're going to be in trouble. We fight where we have to fight, absolutely. That's Proverbs 26. But we're not looking to pick a fight with every human being. We're trying to save souls. Not excusing sin, obviously not excusing sin but loving the soul. A pure heart requires maintenance. It requires preparedness. I can't build up a strong Christian life without a strong understanding of the Word of God. I can't build up a strong Christian character without imitating the love of Christ. I can't build a strong Christian character without having the armor of God to stand against the wiles of the devil. And I can't have a pure heart while allowing everything in the world to be the most important thing. See, an understanding of the Word of God, an understanding of God, really does put things in perspective. And maybe the things that before seemed like the most important, the most drastic thing, and if I don't do this, the whole world is going to fall apart. We'll find out pretty quickly that's not the case. The interesting thing about this sermon, though, is that I can't tell you if you have a pure heart. Because I don't know. I can't look inside your private life. I can't sit there with surveillance cameras 24-7 and look at every aspect of your life and tell you if you have a pure heart. Only you can do that. Sermons like these, these are self-reflecting. But in Matthew chapter 5, around verse 8, He tells us, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Those who have a pure heart will be one of His. Are you one with a pure heart tonight? Have you allowed the things of this world to become the most important thing? Have you allowed the things of this world to change your decisions from what they should be? Have you allowed fear and anger and hatred to be your guiding light? If that is the case, He wants you to be saved tonight. He doesn't want you to leave these doors unsure about where you're going to end up in eternity. He made the path available. See, we have the Word of God that we can hear it according to Romans 10.17. See that all these things took place for a reason. We can believe it to be true. We can be willing to repent of all of our past sins, to change our mind, to follow after a new path. 
and we can be willing to confess that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And based upon that confession, we'd be happy to baptize you into Christ this very evening. Raised to walk in newness of life, living beyond all things that are in the world. But maybe you already are a Christian. You already did all of these things. You already were baptized into Christ, but maybe you forgot to keep up with the maintenance. Maybe you allowed everything else to become important in your life again, and it dragged you away from God. He wants you back. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we're willing to confess it tonight, to make it right, so that we can leave these doors confident in our Lord. If you have any need, don't hesitate. Come now as together we stand as we sing.